According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Once again, join me in Luke 15. As always, our growth comes through the Scriptures. Turning your Bibles to Luke 15. There's a sheep that got lost, a coin that got lost, and now a, a, a boy, a knucklehead young man. That gets lost. And uh, the story is the same. The rejoicing in heaven is by virtue of grace and action. And uh, the Father's mercy in uh, finding that which is lost. And so uh, we'll see that here today in our third episode of this single parable. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that as believer priests, we are filled with the Holy Spirit and prepared to function in our spiritual priesthood. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day and the truth of Your Word. We uh, ask for Your hand of blessing upon our assembly today, a hedge of protection around us, Father. Uh, protect us from those that may desire to come in here and bring us to harm or to uh, stop or hinder our proceedings. Father, uh, open our eyes, the eyes of our understanding to uh, these important principles and give us the hard attitude, Father, to be the, uh, the, the Father when necessary in restoring the, uh, the sinner. Uh, the, the prodigal when necessary, when needing to, uh, to wake up and, and repent. And, uh, and keep us, Father, from becoming the older brother that's just so pharisaical and full of himself that he's not, uh, not sharing in heaven's joy. So, Father, uh, open our eyes to these truths. I thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, let's get a look at it again, although I think sometimes this chapter teaches itself. It's... Uh, very well known, very clear as far as it goes. But don't lose sight of the fact that the story about a dad and two boys is uh, the third telling of something told three times. And actually, it is set up by the initial verses of the chapter where tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus Christ to be taught, to learn, to grow, to fellowship. In other words, to share in the rejoicing of heaven. And uh, as we're taught here, are these things uh, uh, in both story episode one and episode two, the rejoicing in heaven is the the uh, epilogue to each episode. In verse seven, we're told joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over the ninety nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Likewise, in verse 10, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, that. Uh, epilogue, that statement does not come. And in other words, there is no verse 33 where that statement is repeated now for a third time. Instead, what happens is the uh, monologue of the father. You have here the words of the father to the older brother. And so in verses 31 and 32, you have the uh, restatement of that rejoicing uh, not in a, in a heavenly sense, but in an earthly sense. But we're going to see how it does reflect the father's joy in that application. As he says to him, son, you have always been with me and all that is mine is yours. Uh, spoken by an earthly father to an earthly son. But understand how it reflects the heavenly rejoicing that takes place. And why it is that we are reconciled to the father in the first place but when we come to Christ. So this is part of... Uh, what we'll study here today. Now, 
we uh, gave kind of a general introduction at our main point one and uh, how what's being taught here is the grace of God and restoring the lost. That's the main point. Remember, every time you study a parable, understand there is a main point being communicated. And we don't try to uh, insist on forcing some kind of a, a, a mystical understanding of all the nitty gritty details uh, for any parable, certainly not this one or any of the parables. The tax collectors and sinners had ears to hear while the Pharisees and scribes had mouths to grumble. And uh, understand that the conflict centers on relationship and fellowship. Those two issues, relationship and fellowship. Their primary complaint is that he receives sinners, that's relationship, and that he eats with them, there's the fellowship. And two components there that we relate to in our salvation, of course, salvation being the, the relationship and then the fellowship afterwards that uh, is under our present consideration three episodes all right the lost sheep the lost coin and the lost son i just have to down arrow as fast as i can because i don't have these slide numbers written down in my notes the three principles from two weeks ago the parable has a heavenly reality heavenly joy exists for the righteous but a greater joy uh, is observed for the restoration of the sinner. That's uh, what we don't want to overlook. The fact that, yes, there is joy for the righteous. Uh, the father is happy to have a son that did not uh, reject him and flee and squander the estate and all the rest. Yes, he is happy in a righteous son that needs no repentance. Yes, there is joy for that. But the joy is greater for the uh, restoration of the sinner to fellowship. Where the father gets no joy whatsoever is in the destruction of the wicked. That is a, a principle out of Ezekiel and other places that we want to understand as well. That is where no joy exists whatsoever. Um, and this, I think this helps us to also relate to where we are when we are not sharing in heaven's joy, like this older brother. If we find ourselves in uh, a mental attitude of carnality and we're not... Uh, sharing in heaven's joy. What are we doing? We're finding alternative cosmos pleasures. Uh, the idea of finding pleasure in the death of the wicked. The idea of rubbing your hands and waiting to see somebody get what's coming to them. All right? It's just carnal. It is evil. It's satanic. God is the God of grace. God's not in heaven waiting to dish out what they've got coming to them. All right? He wishes for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And uh, the eternal destruction in the lake of fire following the great white throne judgment is the last resort in the father's mind because he is in time being revealing and gracious and kind and forgiving and uh, desirous for those to come to Christ while uh, while they still have opportunity to do so. So those are the heavenly points and they come back again in the second part and third part of this parable. The lost coin we looked at last week, read a uh, lengthy section out of Barclay describing the uh, the history of this and the nature of these ten coins and how uh, how they fit in the uh, headpiece of a married woman of that day. And so now today we're dealing with the lost son. And I gave you A already. The uh, third telling of this principle has three main characters and we're just going to call them Pater, Neoteros, and Presbyteros. Father, older, younger. Those are the three greek terms there pater is the father and he's the main point he's the main point of the story not the prodigal son 
and not the older son. It's the father. He is the main point of this story. He is the one with the estate. He is the one that uh, blesses the two boys. Neodoros is the younger. Presbuteros is the older. A lot of attention is focused on the presbytery, the presbyterion, the uh, presbyter, the elder in uh, terms of a local church, in terms of uh, how churches uh, are structured and arranged in their uh, leadership and so forth. There has never been, I don't, to my knowledge, a significant movement in church history where the governance of a local church was vested in the younger men. All right. Uh, we have a Presbyterian form of church government, but I've never been exposed to or heard of uh, a Neodoros form of church government. See, the whole concept seems rather foolish. Well, be that as it may. All right. Um, I liked the quote from uh, Lang. Strictly speaking, both the sons here are lost. Both sons are lost. The one through the unrighteousness that degrades him. The other through the self-righteousness which blinds him. And both of these tell a story that I think is just far too common in our own experience uh, in that believers uh, can get judgmental towards other believers. They get prideful and they are just as carnal, just as lost, maybe even more so. Because at least the prodigal, when he's out there in the world and miserable and everything else is a nightmare, he can come to his senses and he knows he's got the internal witness of his conscience. He's got whatever grounding in the word his father has given him. He's got everything that's able to rebuke him where he comes to his senses. Whereas the older brother is so blinded by this pride and this self-righteousness, uh, the idea of coming to his senses may be a long time coming as far as that goes. All right. What's happening in this story is that the younger son, Neodoros, is ordering his share of the father's estate. He wants emancipation out of the family, and he wants it now. He's not willing to wait for uh, uh, his father to die. He's not willing to wait for the inheritance when uh, the, the proper time for the inheritance is the death of the father. And yet the father, so graciously, does. He divides the livelihood. So... Um, I think that the, of this story being told three times, the first time uh, the, the item is lost or the, the, the thing is lost, the sheep is lost uh, by virtue of his own uh, stupidity. All right. Just sheep are dumb animals. They don't know better and they just wander off and get lost. That's what they do. All right. In the second case, the coin is lost. Is it the coin's fault that it's lost? No, the coin has no choices to make. The coin's not involved in getting lost. It's just acted upon. It's an object. It's a thing. Uh, so, in the first case, the, the, the loss takes place because of stupidity. In the second case, the loss takes place through no fault of their own, somebody else's stupidity or carelessness. And now in this third case, it's neither stupidity nor carelessness. It is willful rebellion resulting in the consequences of this broken fellowship or this lost um, circumstance. So, simply reading the narrative then. A man had two sons, and then the younger of them, Neodoros, says to Pater, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Now, it's, it's typically assumed that this is one-third of the father's estate. Uh, generally, uh, the man has two sons, two and only two. Uh, we're not told that there's any daughters in the picture. Uh, we're also, strictly speaking, not told that it's a Jewish man and Jewish sons, but it's usually assumed as such because Jesus is speaking to Pharisees here. 
Um, but whatever the case, it's not important uh, whether it's Jewish or Gentile or, or what have you. It's a it's really it's a universal story that any culture is going to understand. The Roman culture is going to understand it. Any, any Gentile culture is going to understand it. Under Mosaic law, the older son was entitled to double portion. So if there are, in fact, two sons, then the older son gets two portions. The younger son gets one portion, and it works out as two-thirds, one-third. That's how it goes. If um, you have three sons, then two portions, one and one, and the older son ends up with half. He ends up with two out of the four. And, and so forth. If there's five and six and so forth, it's, it's the, the older son gets uh, a double portion as if he was two sons himself and then however many other sons beyond that is how that would go. Now, interestingly enough, this idea of a premature division actually was known. It was not unusual. It was not recommended. Premature estate distribution was discouraged by secular wisdom literature and it was regulated by Jewish traditions, discouraged by secular wisdom literature. I'm going to read a uh, apocryphal reference here this morning. I don't know that I've done this. Uh, well, probably I can't say ever. I must have at some time or another. But I very rarely will I ever cite the apocrypha. But uh, in the sense that you understand, it's not scripture. It's not God-breathed and inspired. But it is ancient literature. It was known to the people of the day. And it was a part of their culture. It was a part of their traditions. And uh, a lot of it was incorporated in the Mishnah and, and so forth. So I will read from, from the uh, wisdom of Sirach out of the uh, uh, apocrypha. And also it's out of the Greek Septuagint, I might add. Premature estate distribution was discouraged by secular wisdom literature. And your reference for this is called Sirach, or the wisdom of Ben Sirach. And uh, usually just abbreviated S-I-R, uh, chapter 33, verses 19 through 23. It was also regulated by Jewish traditions. And uh, the uh, Mishnah, the tractate within the Mishnah called Baba Batra uh, 8.7 is the reference that we will look at there. And... Did I? I did not. Okay. I was afraid of that, which is why I went ahead and started this up. And there are different Apocrypha translations that are available. I'll just stick with Charles. Language isn't too bad. You like 18th century English, 19th century English, different things. All right, Sirach uh, 33:19. You know what? Okay, yeah, we can. It's not my favorite text. Let's see. I have a better one. do this one instead. The versification works better. All right. Again, this is not Bible. It's not Scripture. It's an apocryphal book um, written in about the 3rd century, 4th century B.C. It was actually, the Greek text of this was included in the Septuagint, but uh, no Hebrew manuscript was ever accepted in the Hebrew canon, never accepted as Hebrew Scriptures by the ancient rabbis but it was part of their tradition and part of their culture 
Give not thy son and wife, thy brother and friend, power over thee while thou livest, and give not thy goods to another, lest it repent thee, and thou entreat for the same again. In other words, you might regret it. <laughs> you might regret it. If you give your will too early while you're still alive, dividing your inheritance, um, then uh, you may come to regret it later on. See? Uh, so if you hold off until you're dead, then there's still opportunity to write them out of your will <laughs> if they uh, end up being the wicked, evil folks that you're afraid they are. As long as thou livest and hast breath in thee, give not thyself over to any. For better it is that thy children should seek to thee than thou shouldst stand to their courtesy. <laughs> All right? Rule of thumb. As long as you're still alive and that uh, estate is still pending, then uh, your children will have a motivation. Now, this is not scripture. All right, this is just worldly, common sense, temporal life wisdom. Okay, that um, uh, you're better off that uh, that they should seek to thee than that thou should stand to their courtesy. In all thy works, keep to thyself the preeminence. Leave not a stain in thine honor. At the time when thou shalt end thy days and finish thy life, distribute thine inheritance. And so that's the, um, the recommendation in secular uh, wisdom of the day. Looks like this is a little bit more modern on the English. Not quite the these and the thous. But I prefer that one better. Okay. So, premature estate distribution. This young man saying, give me my estate. Give me the share that falls to me, the lot that falls to me. And with the intention, although whether the father knew it or not, or whether it would have changed his actions or not, we don't know. But the son doesn't intend to stay there. The son doesn't even intend to use that other than to liquidate everything and, and live off the proceeds. All right. And whether the father knew that or not is not stated. Uh, if that factor would have changed his thinking, we don't know. I doubt it. I think he still would have had the same thinking in either case. So discouraged by secular wisdom literature was also regulated by Jewish traditions. So let me bring up the Mishnah next and we'll read Baba Batra 8.7. Say that three times fast. Baba Batra. Baba Batra. That's not in the Bible either, right? It's not in the Bible because no one could take something like Baba Batra very seriously. Oops, there's Baba Kama. Baba Batra. Here we go. And what did I say? Eight, seven. Now, the Mishnah is the record of Jewish traditions. However, keep in mind, it was not uh, compiled into written documentation until after our New Testament was done. It was not compiled into written uh, record until second century, third century of the uh, of, of A.D. of the Christian era, and so uh, we we can accept it as reliable because it reflected the oral tradition of Jesus' day. But keep in mind, it was simply oral at that point, taught by the different rabbis, taught by the different uh, leaders, and it was not in the written form as we have it today. And so here you notice there are differences of opinion, and there's actually a little bit of a contrast prior to this about how to resolve disputes in different wills and different things. Keep in mind that the Jewish people specialized in probate. I mean, they specialized in estate 
resolutions, in, in the execution of wills, in valid versus invalid wills. It was vital to them, not just as a matter of law, but it was a feature of their covenant. The fact that their land grant was very much tied to their tribes, to their uh, clans, to their families, to their unconditional blessings by the Lord. It was not just uh, like we would think of it today as common sense business practices. To them, it was it was to the core of their very being as a covenant nation in inside of the Lord. So uh, these matters you would expect are not only found in Scripture, but also spoken of uh, from their different rabbis and their different teachers. All right. So in Baba Batra... Uh, 8-7, we read, He who writes over, and these other letters, A, B, C, D, E, are simply division, versification divisions, but he who writes over his property to his sons has to write from today and after death. That was a formula that had to appear, and if it didn't appear, then it wasn't valid, that from today and after death. In other words, if you're going to prematurely, if you're going to prematurely uh, distribute your estate, be your own executor, as it were, then these are the stipulations you have to follow. You must use the words from today and after death. It was a formula that was mandated in law. These were the words of Rabbi Judah. Uh, however, if you are of the school that follows uh, Yose, Rabbi Yose, he says, no, you don't have to do that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be those precise words. All right, you can still convey your estate ahead of your death, uh, even without those precise words. You see the kind of things the, the rabbis dickered over and argued over and all of the things that they, as they tithe mint and cumin and dill and all these other things and why uh, when the Lord of the Sabbath arrived, he didn't recognize the Sabbath they had turned it into. All right, continuing. He who writes over his property to his son to take effect after his death. The father cannot sell the property because it is written over to the son. All right, makes sense. If you've already ex- executed your, you know, distributed your estate, then you can't sell it afterwards. All right, it now belongs to your son, whichever son you distributed it to. Although you are expected to still live out your days on that land, the son holds it in trust, as it were, for your sake, for your benefit. You live off the land, you still reap the proceeds of it. But it doesn't belong to you anymore. It belongs to the Son, and you can't sell it. It is written over to the Son. And the Son cannot sell the property either. Why not? It's his, right? Well, yes, it's his, but it's his in a premature will. It's his in a, in a pre-death uh, distribution. So he has to hold it for the sake of the Father, to support the Father uh, through the Father's uh, last days. So the Son cannot sell the property because it is yet in the domain of, of the father. If the father sold the property, it is sold until he dies. If the son sold the property, the purchaser has no right whatever in the property until the father dies. The father harvests the crops and gives, here's a word we don't use every day, the usufruct. Do you use that word every day? I don't. To anyone whom he wants. All right. So in other words, whatever the land produces, if there's apple trees on the land, orange trees on the land, uh, you know, vines and, and wine grapes or whatever it is, the, the land belongs to the sun, but the usufruct, the, 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 the fruit that the land uses, that produces, um, still the father enjoys anything that that land grows. Any babies born, uh, you know, uh, animals uh, Babies born, any uh, livestock increase, any um, 
It's designed to feed him. It's designed to support him. It's his to make use of as he wills. Whatever he left already harvested, lo, it belongs to his heirs. If he left adult and minor sons, the adults may not take care of themselves. Anyway, this gets into some more complicated things. Nor may the minor sons support themselves at the expense of the adult sons. Yeah, what happens if this uh, estate has already been distributed and there's, there's still kids at home? All right. Uh, they had in this tribal culture, there was situations that... Um, maybe we don't relate to very well in the sense of the connections that continue to exist between adult fathers and adult sons. All right. And even though a son has left father and mother and is cleaving to a wife and the two become one flesh and he's living in his own place and and so forth, there are still the connections between father and son because of their family, their clan, their tribe the land that the son will inherit when the father dies, there are still these connections. And a lot of that is things that we don't think of very often, but we still need to if we're going to think tribally and really appreciate the Old Testament for what it is. It also, by the way, comes into the New Testament application as well because the Romans, Roman law, was even more um, totalitarian on this on this issue in the sense that the pater, uh, what was called the pater familius, the, the head of the family, the head of the family was supreme under Roman law. And um, the, the, it didn't matter. It did not matter how old the adult son was. If his father was still living, he could not become the paterfamilia until his father uh, was, was gone. See, So, um, anyway, different, different applications that will happen there. So, what happens, yes, what happens here in the case where uh, the will has been executed... And an older son, an adult son with his own estates, his own land, his own family and so forth. And and for whatever reason, he may need it. He may need the the land itself for his own business, for his own connections, for his own whatever. He may need it, the backing of this land to dower his daughters and forge marriage relationships there. I mean, there's no there's any number of possibilities why an adult son may need to have that will executed um, before his dad dies, you know, maybe an advance on his inheritance or something, right? And, uh, and, and of course, promising, yes, dad, of course, I'm going to take care of you. I'll take care of mom. You're going to live out your days here on this land. Well, the problem comes in, of course, if there's still children at home, the younger children that are still in their minority, that are still under parental authority there, and they have to be provided for as well. And then what do you do with the daughters? And how do you provide for their dowries and different things that happen there? All right, well, anyway, this is uh, part of why when you start to study Judaism, you, yeah, they even write in here, what if you're not sure the gender of the uh, children? (laughs) You thought that was limited to our modern confused culture. Oops. All right. Back to my slideshow. What is this? There we go. Premature estate distribution was discouraged by secular wisdom literature. We read in Sirach how the the wisdom of of Ben Sirach was don't do it. Uh, If you do it, you may regret it. If you do it, you're going to leave yourself in the at the 
mercy and compassion of your son for the rest of your days. It's better off that they are relying on you instead of you relying on them kind of a thing. That was the secular wisdom literature. And then Jewish traditions, Baba Batra, the Mishnah traditions that strongly regulate how it is that these premature estates can be uh, can be divided. Now, something else that's happening here is that he is looking for a total departure to never see him again approach. Neodoros was parting from Pater. The younger son planned on never returning. Neodoros was parting from Pater in a manner similar to Abraham's dismissal of all his sons but Isaac. A complete disinheritance uh, where a father disowns his children or a son disowns his father, disowns his family. That's what this story is describing. And it's a disinheritance uh, or a departure from all family connections in, uh, in, a, in a tragic way. But yet with the conclusion at the end of the story to show how in the father's mindset it's not even possible. In the father's mindset, it is not possible to lose your status as a son. Even if you are faithless, even if you are, uh, if it's, uh, if you, you could try as hard as you want to separate yourself from the love of Christ, which is it, or love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, it's just not going to happen. All right. So the young man was parting from the father. And when he says, give me my share of the inheritance, he, uh, his intention was to liquidate everything and run. All right. Run to a far country, to a, a city here. Interestingly enough, we're not told the city. Yeah, was it Rome? Was that what it was? Was Jesus making this allusion to Rome? It was fairly common. It was the capital of the Gentile Empire. It was uh, one of the largest cities on planet Earth at the time. Not the largest, but one of. It was a place to disappear. It was a place to spend lavishly. It was a place to... Uh, to um, really just saturate yourself with the cosmos world system. All right. The younger of them said to his father, verse 12, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Interestingly enough, and I put that under point B, but I didn't read it out yet. The father divided his livelihood to both sons. He went ahead and executed the estate to both the younger son who asked for it and the older son who did not. Okay, Sometimes that gets overlooked here. But it says he divided his wealth between them, between both of them. Both sons received their inheritance this day. The younger son received his third. The older son received his two-thirds. Okay, Although there are studies that divide it out a little bit differently. They think that one-ninth was held back for the father's support. And there's different traditions aligned with that as well. Well, let's just try to keep it simple here for this, for this moment. He divided his wealth between them. At this point, the father has what? Nothing. Okay, the father has nothing. He's given a third to the younger son. He's given two-thirds to the older son. And yet, towards the end of the study, we're going to see this, the father still has all kinds of things. He's got a fattened calf. He's got a robe. He's got a ring. He's got, he's got servants that, that follow his instructions. There's a concept here we want to understand. How is it that the father can give and still possess? Okay. How is it that the father gives but he still has? Now, part of that we'll describe in terms of the 
the uh, what we read already in terms of a premature will where the father gives to the son, but he still lives there. He still has the benefit of the fruit. He still has the the uh, the, the rights to usufruct, <laughs> all right, things like that. But I think there's, and that's true. I'm not going to diminish any of that. But I think there's also another element here that describes the nature of our ministry in the fact that we give and are by no means diminished. That you can give in great uh, abundance of your poverty and be all the richer for it. That in the Father's economy, giving does not diminish you, it increases you. See, that's a very true principle that applies. And if it's not spelled out explicitly in this parable, it certainly is consistent with this parable. Because the Father's going to tell him here to the Son, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. It's a sharing between a father and a son whom he, whom he loves. And we want to understand that. The point here is not, well, yes, it's, it's being lost and being found, but what's the value to being found? The value to being found is then the resultant fellowship that's possible. Fellowship that you have between a father and a son. You don't have fellowship with a sheep. You don't have fellowship with a coin. All right? That's why this third episode is the... the uh, the, 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 the pinnacle of this message, and it really is the one that provides the, the intimacy. It provides the understanding of why this is so important. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but we'll, we'll uh, make sure we have this point clear before we leave here for today. Now, the idea that a cash uh, payout departure... Um, it's not alien to Scripture. In fact, it's uh, common and it's actually necessary in the case of Isaac. Let's uh, go back to Genesis and let's evaluate this here. And Because this is what the, the young man is asking for when he takes what's his, cashes it out, and goes. And I have to wonder who he found as a buyer for some of the uh, you know, some of the, however many, you know, they subdivide their lots, however much of the real estate, how many, you know, the, you got to wonder, was it older brother that actually uh, funded some of this? <laughs> was it older brother who found uh, the opportunity to uh, pick up some cheap land at a good price, knowing that uh, younger brother was eager to cash out as quickly as he could and, and skip town? Or uh, if not older brother, certainly some of his la- uh, agents, could have uh, certainly made those purchases and then funnel them back to uh, rejoin them with, with brother's estate. That's not at all uncommon. All right, Genesis 21. Remember, uh, God had promised Abraham a son, and that son is Isaac, not Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael was human effort in uh, trying to help God uh, make good on his promises. God doesn't need help making good on his promises. And so Ishmael is, uh, is the uh, eternal testimony to a mess we make of things when we <laughs> try to bring these things about in our own human effort. And uh, so in chapter 21 now, Sarah has a baby, and here's, Ishmael, or here's Isaac. And the problem is, in verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking and so he's about 16, I think, at this age. And uh, whatever it is, he's laughing at this little runt Isaac newborn. And, and so uh, she says to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of, of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. In other words, drive him out. Disinherit him. He has no part in 
my inheritance. He shall not be an heir with my, with my son, Isaac. Notice, not your son, not Yahweh's promised son, my son. See, the woman that waited 90 years to have a baby and, and maybe angry at herself because the whole Hagar thing was her idea to begin with. Hard to say. Well, the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. Here's a 16-year-old young man, and Abraham had fellowship with this young man. I believe he's a believer. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. So God's going to work all things together for good. Abraham uh, is informed here that Isaac is the son of promise. The covenant is coming through Isaac. The covenant is not coming through Ishmael. So, uh, you know, Islam is a, is a lie, and you understand that. Um, but notice, and the son of the maid, I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. There are temporal life blessings to the Ishmaelites simply because they are Abrahamic. Why do you think the Arabs are filthy oil rich? They are Abrahamic blessed, temporal life blessed in spite of their, the, the satanic Islam that they pursue. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took the bread and a skin of water, gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, gave her the boy, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. So here's the departure. And yet, what I find interesting is at the end of Abraham's life, uh, Ishmael returns. And with Isaac's blessings, uh, with Isaac's permission, the two of them bury their father. And I find that to be significant. Uh, Ishmael, I believe, is a believer. He understands he's not a part of the unconditional covenant, but he's still a saved Gentile. And he wants to honor his father. It's biblical to honor your father and mother. He wants to do that. And Isaac lets him do it. Together they bury Abraham. And uh, here's Hagar, and she has a conversation with the Lord. I believe she's a believer, and, and uh, Ishmael is a believer. And the different things there. All right, over to chapter 25 then, because this is not the only time. Genesis 25. And um, Sarah's gone now. And uh, Abraham remarries. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. I mean, keep in mind, he's only 150 years old. He's still got, you know, he's lonely. He has needs. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I don't know. I'm, I'm wrong. Maybe, well, I'm not wrong. Look at all these babies. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah, and she bore to him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, uh, Ishbak, Shua. All right. And Jokshan became the father of Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim and Letushim and Lemumim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, and Hanak. And uh, the sons of, and the sons of, and the sons of. Now, there's a lot to study with respect to this. And, and keep in mind, all of these people as well are Abrahamic. They are Abrahamic and they are a part of the Arab culture to this day. And, and they're also featured uh, subsequently in uh, Old Testament history. The Midianites, for example. Uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro the Midianite, who's a priest of Midian. And why is it that some of these Gentiles have a concept for El Elyon, for God Most High? They understand the God of creation, the God of... of uh, the Creator God. Well, they're Abrahamic. Of course they're going to have a background that's going to understand the God of Abraham. All right, They're not a part of that covenant. They're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they are Abrahamic. See, 
And so Jethro, the priest of Midian, is a Gentile priest to the one true God. Now, these sons, just like Ishmael, cannot remain. Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. And so the idea here, I think, by concubines plural, is that not only do you have Keturah in view, but it is also a retroactive statement uh, with uh, with the reference to Hagar also. And so you would include uh, Ishmael and all of these Keturah sons in this situation he gave them gifts while he was still living and uh, in other words cashes them out depart won't won't see you till heaven uh, but you are no longer a part of my family my estate my clan my inheritance you have no more place in this um, in this place sent them away from his son isaac eastward to the land of the east and the different things there. And this is where Abraham dies at 175. And uh, Isaac and Ishmael bury him in the cave of Machpelah. No mention that the Keturah boys showed up, but I you know, you expect they might. But it's still Isaac and Ishmael that are mentioned as the ones heading up the, uh, the burial procedure. So what's Neodorus want to do? Well, he converts his inheritance into cash cashes everything out any land possessions he sells the land any livestock he sells the livestock it has to be portable so whatever coinage whatever precious metals whatever jewels uh, whatever portable currency was used of the day and and they used it all they used animals they used uh, you know currency on the hoof (laughs) livestock you could move it and uh, convert it to cash when you got there the only thing, of course, you couldn't take was the land, and so you would sell that and, uh, and, and take the rest. A life of luxury in a dissipation nation. And uh, is that not us today? Is that not us today? You know, it's interesting. I saw a study yesterday. There was a graph, a chart, and uh, on a website. I don't remember now where it was, but the... It was tracking the poor in our country, American poor. And, um, and it had statistics from the 60s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, yeah, every decade up until now. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. The poor today, and it tracks uh, uh, basically material comforts, uh, cell phones, Televisions, color televisions, vehicles, motor vehicles, washer dryer, microwave, things like that. Um, and uh, the poor in our country today, as measured by American statistics and what whatnot, uh, are better off than the middle class was in 1972 or whatever the figures were on the chart. Just in terms of things, material things that we possess. <laughs> Well, here's a boy convinced that things will make him happy. That uh, life is about the fun you can have. And uh, the things you can have, the things you can do, the food you can eat, the the wine you can drink, the women you can sleep with, and and, uh, everything that happens there. So, uh, not many days later, 
the younger son gathered everything together. Gathered everything together. It's a. This is the the most bizarre word study of the whole chapter. Is that phrase "gathered everything together"? It's like he he made a synagogue out of everything. <laughs> he he gathered it together. Sudago brought it all together, cashed it out in an economic application, went on a journey to a distant country, and there he squandered squandered his estate with loose living. And this is where we get the word prodigal. This is the prodigate, uh, profligate living. And uh, just lived it up. You know, think about how expensive it is if you're, um, you know, just living on cash and living in a hotel room somewhere and you're not working and you're just uh, not cooking, you're eating out everywhere, you're throwing parties, all these things. And... Uh, Remind me again tomorrow. Why does this thing always show up on Wednesdays? All right. But cashing out, heading off to a life of luxury. Um, The vocabulary here, as I said, is interesting. The term to gather everything together is where we get synagogue, where you're gathered together. Uh, He gathers together all of his assets, gathers together all of his cash, makes everything portable and goes. All right. What a simple life, right? You think about it. No, uh, nothing tying you down. No responsibilities. No, no job keeping you here. No property keeping you here. No ball and chain keeping you here. No, uh, whatever that means. No, uh, <laughs> right? And this is the, the wild life of a, of a bachelor. Whatever he wants to do. Go where you want to go. Do what you want to do. Eat what you want to eat. It's just like the, 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 the pinnacle fantasy of any young idiot guy. Now, the um, come to think of it, <laughs> I tell that story too. In uh, May of 1990, when I drove from Washington State to Texas for the very first time, this is a true story. I was driving a 1987 uh, Chevrolet Nova, and um, everything I owned on planet Earth fit in my car. Think about that. Anyway. I did not do the rest of this chapter, though. (laughs) So, yes, I was portable. I gathered everything together. I drove across the country. Um, And there he squandered, squandered. His estate with loose living. And the vocabulary for squandered is kind of fun. We won't go into it. Loose living is what you might expect. We won't go into it. Interestingly enough, the description here is very general. Later on, when the brother is grumbling, he gets very specific. This son of yours who devoured your wealth with prostitutes. How does he know that? Is he assuming? Is he... he uh, is a little bit of, a, of his own carnality slipping out here, and what he he would want to do if he dared to get away with it, or what he would uh, what he would think about doing if he decided to run wild, kind of a thing. Or, I think much more likely, does he have his own agents and spies reporting back on what exactly this uh, kid's doing? I think he kept tabs on him the whole time. The whole time, probably had business associations with the pig farmers here. I think the wickedness of this older brother is such. He has this absolute pharisaical superiority. He's better than this little kid. Better than this runt little brother. 
and to keep daily convincing himself how better he is than this little brother, he continues to keep tabs on what that brother is doing. And so he follows all of the rising and falling, all the fortunes and misfortunes. He follows all the reports on what's going on. And when the, when the brother falls into need, does he do anything about it? Does he care? Or is he pridefully happy about it? Said, ha, getting what's coming to him. Serves him right. And it's interesting. Well, this dissipation nation, it is... Uh, Interesting, He's when he had spent everything, you know, what happens if you think you've got enough to live on and then you run out? What's next, right? A severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. Yeah, what happens when you, you, you think you've got a, all your savings intact, but that's on this standard of living, and what happens when inflation skyrockets and now instead of uh, uh, a 20-year supply, you, you've got a six-month supply or a one-month supply, and then it's gone. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. Sent him into his fields to, f- to feed swine. Keep in mind, we, we don't relate to this. This seems serious. We think, okay. He ran out of money, so he went and he found a job. Separate yourself from your 21st century American culture. The idea of hiring yourself out, going out and getting a job, are you kidding me? You know what the job market was like in the ancient world? Not like you and I have it today. Not like a free market capitalism society today. Not like a middle class, uh, uh, merchant class uh, uh, economic system today. Are you kidding me? You want to go get a job? Why would anyone hire you? We're talking ancient world here, folks. Slave labor. They're not going to pay you. Are you kidding me? You want a job? Not common at all. Uh, when slave labor is much uh, more prevalent and much uh, simpler. Um, anyway, there's, uh, there's other things at work here. To the citizens of that country, he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, what, what's really remarkable, he hires himself out to the citizens, plural, of that country, and then he, singular, sent him into his fields to feed swine. And, and there's a, it, it does not tell us who the he is there. It's a very uh, interesting language because the citizens are plural, but the he is singular. And um, I think when we get to heaven, we may find... Of course, this, is this a true story or is, this, is Christ just making this up? You know, you got one week to figure that out. Same thing next week when we start talking about Lazarus and, and the rich man in, in hell. Is that a true story? Is Jesus just making stuff up? Is it a parable? Is it a make-believe? All right. The life of luxury. What happens then, i got six minutes to teach the... Uh, uh-oh. Here we go. I decided to take out the subpoints, <laughs> but, but I forgot to remove the little markers. Oh, well. The reunion disunion teaches the fundamental doctrine for this entire chapter. The reunion, disunion. The Father's happy for the reunion. It is a cause for joy. But it's the older brother with a disunity. The older brother that, want, that is actively hostile to 
the uh, not only is he not here's the point he's not only not sharing in heaven's joy he is actually working against it he's fundamentally opposed to it it angers him so consider the difference between simply not sharing a joy and maintaining an opposing hatred you see how vile that is absolutely vile and it is it is not it is so alien to the Christian way of life that um, we have in this older son here, we have a vivid portrayal of what these Pharisees are doing. When the Pharisees are saying, these guys can't come and eat with Jesus. Who are these tax collectors and sinners? Who do they think they are? How dare they? How dare they fellowship in, in things of Scripture? Who do they think they are? They're tax collectors, they're sinners. They can't even, they're, they're so ceremonially unclean, they can't even participate in our Passover feast. What business do they have reading the Hebrew Scriptures? Or listening to Jesus read it to them? You know, and it's really remarkable when you are that full of yourself and that full of pride and that full of your own learning, your own scholarship, you become really the preeminent illustration of how knowledge puffs up and love edifies. No one else can even talk about it. No one else is even qualified to even think about it. Like in our current global warming fiasco going on right now, and these, these uh, scientists caught red-handed cooking their stats, forging their own uh, statistics to, to produce the results, they, the predetermined results they wanted in the first place. The evidence didn't bear it out, so change the evidence. And then they get caught red-handed. And now they're trying to, uh, you know, fall back on all kinds of logical fallacies like the, uh, you know, the appeal to authority and the other things they try to do that, that are just simply um, fall logical fallacies. You can't trust them. Well, here's the Pharisees putting themselves in that position, seating themselves in the chair of Moses. And in their mindset, these tax collectors and these sinners have no business listening to Jesus teach Bible class. He's receiving sinners. That's wrong. He's eating with them. That's wrong. In their minds. They're the keepers of the law. And so it's, they, can't, they have no joy that Jesus has that these sinners are coming to Christ. They have no, Jesus is loving it. Heaven's rejoicing. He's rejoicing. There's positive volition. He that has ears to hear, here they are. Wow. He's rejoicing. They're not. And this older brother, the prodigal, is the uh, presbyteros here in this chapter, is the illustration of this Pharisee attitude. Not only does it fail, so two points into this, failing to rejoice when heaven rejoices is a problem. But then secondly, active hatred against what heaven's doing. That's the real issue. So, goodness, so many things here. I thought the um, he's feeding swine. He would gladly fill his stomach with the paws the swine were eating. You know, even swine food looked better than what he, I mean, he was starving. And they were eating better than he was. And yet he wasn't getting the, uh, the food provision that, uh, you know, a slave, at least a slave gets fed. But he's not even a slave. He's just a, a hireling and... and uh, 
He has to buy his own food with whatever he can afford. And so he says, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here with hunger. I will uh, get up and say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. The fallacy in that verse, when was he ever worthy? Even when he was a son living in the father's house, it wasn't an issue of worthiness. Right? So he's not worthy now. He wasn't worthy then. He'll never be worthy. Grace isn't about worthiness. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, and, he, and notice, he doesn't even get all the way through his prepared speech. He warmed up, he practiced, he rehearsed it, he got it all down, he's ready to, to, to give it to his father, and his father won't even let him get halfway through it. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can get to that part about make me as one of your hired men, Father cuts him off and says to the slaves, quickly bring out the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and sandals on his feet. The son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. See, he's a son. He still is a son. He's always a son. The issue of relationship cannot be broken. You cannot lose your salvation. I don't care what you do. All right? You are always a son, no matter what you do. And then, of course, the, the disunion, disunity when the older brother finds out about it. We already talked about his spy network where he was keeping tabs on the brother. And here's the point. I'm, I'm a little long, but I wanted to wrap this up. The, we had to celebrate. Verse 31, he said to him, son, you have always been with me. You have always been with me. The point in being a son is not getting things from dad when he dies. The point in being a son is being with dad. We're going to go to heaven, and yes, we're the heir of all things because we're in Christ and he's the heir of all things, but we're not hoping to just score a bunch of heavenly treasure uh, because dad's dead. We're going to fellowship with God the Father for all eternity. I have always been with you. You've always been with me. All that is mine is yours. It's the fellowship that a son can have with his father. Yes, the man's happy to have a sheep back, but he's not fellowshipping with the sheep. Yes, the woman's delighted to get the coin back, but she's not fellowshipping with the coin. The father getting the son back has the privilege of fellowship. We had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead. Operationally dead. We call it operational death when you're in carnality. And has begun to live, was lost, and has been found. And this is the point. And the Pharisees should have rejoiced that sinners and tax collectors were coming to Jesus for Bible teaching. Instead, they were the older brother. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Impress upon us the reality of this passage. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Yes, Father, we have eternal rewards awaiting us. We have an unconditional inheritance waiting for us. An uh, inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. But even better, Father, is You're there. In our face-to-face -face delight and worship with our Savior before Your face, Father, that's, that's our goal. That's what we're looking for. Thank You, Father. In Christ's name, Amen.